I don't know if you remember because it's been a while, but you might remember that day when we were with John the Baptist in the water and the Lamb of God showed up. And the Lamb of God is here with us now and will return in glory. That still gives us hope. We have hope to share in a world of despair. We have joy to share in a world of fear. Let's pray. God, we cannot thank you enough for what we anticipate, even though we still have so much that we're waiting on, and we can't wait for the completion of creation, but while we do, we give you our lives once again. We put our lives in your hands in the name of Jesus, amen. I've been spending time over the last few weeks with the ghost of Christmas past. Some of it's been really good, and some of it hasn't. I remember when I was a kid, waking up on Christmas morning and running for presents you could find under the tree. Everybody likes presents. But there was something about pulling stuff out of my stocking, even though I guess I would look at it today and think that it was a bunch of junk. But it was, I don't know why the stocking was so exciting. And every year, I would reach down in the stocking, and even though it was filled with different kinds of things, there was one thing that was constant from as long as I can remember until I quit finding stuff in my stocking, I guess, as I got older. But I would reach down in my stocking, and it was the first thing that I reached for because I always knew it was there. I could count on it being there. I'd grab it in my hand, wrap my hand around it, and pull it out and run into the kitchen and start peeling it immediately. There was an orange in my stocking every single year. And to this day, I don't know why. I don't know why whoever put an orange in my stocking put an orange in my stocking, but I loved it. I think it's why I still eat an orange almost every day to this day. It was something about the excitement and anticipation of something as goofy as an orange in my stocking. Most of the people that filled that stocking have ridden off into the sunset. And so I can't ask, why'd y'all put an orange in my stocking when I was a little boy? And I think that happens a lot with different things in our lives. We wake up and we experience things and we take them for granted. We know they're going to be there, but we don't know how they got there. We don't know where they came from, but they're just there. And even to this day, as I stand with John the Baptist in the water, as we're standing there, John the Baptist knows what he's looking for. He's anticipating, and he knows exactly 
what's about to come. And he's excited. He cannot wait. He could not tell you probably, if pressed, all the history behind the story and everything that happened up to it. But he knew what he was waiting for. He knew what he was watching for. And when he saw it, he knew right what it was. Filled with anticipation, filled with great hope. And then when the Lamb of God finally showed up, he knew it. We watched, as we stood there with John the Baptist, we watched the light of the world walk straight into the darkness, completely unafraid, just walk right into the darkness. And the darkness did not, has not, and will never overcome it. And we forget that sometimes. Because we live in a world that tempts us with despair and fear at every turn. The world tries to get us to look at things that would make us scared. You need to be afraid of this. You need to be filled with fear. We come in here with joyful and hopeful and rebellious hearts and say, no, you will never overtake the light. It's just not going to happen. And so why do we come in and tell this story over and over again. Most of us in here have heard this story a hundred times. Why do we need to hear it again? It's to be reminded that the darkness will never overtake the light, and so we want to see more. We want to see more of God's light, and so we hope and we wait. Why in John 1 does John the Baptist show up, the disciples and even the Lamb of God. It is to point us to the main story, the real central figure of what is happening in this story. So we trust, we hope, we wait, and the story just keeps going. Right in the middle of John 1, after we've been introduced to the story, it just keeps going. And it starts again in 129. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Now, from a theatrical standpoint, I played that down a bit. But can you imagine what John the Baptist must have been like? Why throughout history when he's portrayed in movies and readings, he's just, you know, can hardly contain himself. It's because he says things like, this is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. You know what the people said that day in the water with John the Baptist when he said that? They probably said, I'm really glad you said that because when you said it the first time, I had no idea what you were talking about. A man who was before me... Wait, say that again? But when the people stood there in the water with John the Baptist, they knew that something was happening. And he knew that something was happening. Takes away the sin of the world. Well, that's a tall order. 
but that's what John the Baptist was looking at. He was before me. And just earlier in the story, it started in the beginning. So, of course, he was before you. And then, even though it looks past, it looks forward, might be revealed. Something is still happening. And then the testimony goes like this. Just in the next verse in 32. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Now, I'm totally making all the rest of this up. Right? This is not rooted in history. I didn't read this in some you know, second century mystic. I'm, just, I'm making it up. But I can't help but think that John the Baptist is there in the water. Jesus comes down. Everything happens. And John the Baptist is constantly talking about, I didn't know until I saw the Spirit of God descending. Now think about this for a minute. John the Baptist and Jesus had history. They knew each other, right? Like from way back when. From their own beginnings as people. Can you imagine John the Baptist before he was called John the Baptist? I mean, what did they call him when he was a teenager? John the teenager? John the, you know, really excited guy. And then Jesus. You ever thought about them maybe walking in the same area, growing up together, playing with each other on Christmas Day? They knew each other. And yet, John the Baptist said, I didn't know it was going to be him until the Spirit of God descended. Can you imagine what that day must have been like? Can you picture John the Baptist on that day when the Spirit of God descends on Jesus? Again, I'm making all this up, but the text seems to at least suggest John the Baptist standing there saying, wait, it's you? You're the one? After all this time, you're the one? Who's going to take away the sin of the world? And it's that level of excitement, that level of anticipation that still fills us today, where we still overlap our own story with this story. Because you live long enough, I kid you not, you live long enough, you're going to reach a point where you look at Jesus, or you look at God, or you look at whatever it is that you look at whenever you're in despair and fear and need some hope, and you're going to say, uh, I don't know if you can pull this off. You ever feel that way about God? And you look at your own life, you look deep down into your own heart, and you think, all this God stuff, all this Jesus stuff, it's good for vacation Bible school, but at this point in my life, I, I just don't know. I don't know if God can do it. 
That's why we're standing with Jesus and John the Baptist in the water. Because all you have to do is meet the people that Jesus handpicked, like literally just went up to and said, come on. And they followed. And here's how that story goes. And if you've never heard it, <laughs> just, just wait. John 1.35, the next day. John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? Come. He replied, And you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and spent the day with him. It was about the tenth hour. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas, which when translated means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God. Nazareth. Anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Well, come and see, Philip said. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. John, the gospel writer, can you help me out with that story a little bit? Because how is it that Mr. Nazareth talked to someone who saw him sitting under a fig tree and said, you're the son of God? There's something... Something, something, something going on inside Nathaniel. There's something deep down inside him. And no matter how many times people have tried to explain it, biblical and extra-biblical sources, I think Nathaniel has a story that we're never going to completely know. You know who else fits that description? You. Me. Everybody else who's ever walked with Jesus. And that gives us hope too. And one more thing. That's all what has happened. But John 1 ends with what we've been doing the last few weeks. Things to come. 
what we still hope and wait for. It's just the very last verse of John 1, verse 51. Jesus then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. John 1 introduces us to a world where Jesus faced an uphill battle. Jesus faced the uphill battle of getting people to pay attention to God. And I think Jesus had a hard time because he kept telling people through his words and actions and even the way he lived his life, you need to pay attention to God. And sometimes on days like, I don't know, Sermon on the Mount, People went home that night and it's like, I really need to pay attention to God again. And they did for a few days. And then they kind of just get back into their own routines. And the despair starts creeping in again and the fear starts creeping in again. And then all these disciples start going around telling the story again. And the people go, oh yeah, I remember now. You see, a funny thing happened on the way to God. The people received the law from God through Moses... And then the people started thinking more about the law than God. That's that's the world that Jesus entered. That's the world that we went down into the water with John the Baptist and met Jesus. That's the world that surrounded that entire story. The people would tell you all day long, yeah, we know who God is. We talk God all the time. We love God. But when push came to shove, what they loved, and Jesus revealed this, and so did everybody else around Jesus, what the people really loved was the stories that they had adopted, codified, solidified, and spent all their time trying to lock down and defend. And Jesus came and said, that's not what this is about. You see, the thing is, we do the same thing. Sermon on the Mount, writings of Paul, a lot of the New Testament, we do that too. And we forget sometimes, and that's why this season is so special. We forget sometimes that the one that we encounter is the living Jesus, not a dead word that will What's church about? Well, we just spend all our time locking down these ideals and then we defend them with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. See, after John the Baptist introduces us to Jesus, all the other characters in John do the same thing. Keep introducing us to Jesus. Now watch out, because I'm about to get going. All... Churches have the same primary mission. Introduce everyone to Jesus. Everyone. Everybody gets introduced to Jesus. Not just a select few, but tax collectors and prostitutes 
and lepers and Pharisees and teachers of the law. And what they all have in common is that they all get the same introduction. Prostitutes and Pharisees, they get the same introduction. We'd like for you to meet Jesus. Nice to meet you, Jesus. Now what? Because if we keep every law down to the last dotted I and cross T, but we have not love, especially in the mission of the living Jesus, well, you can see where we would go with that, right? We broker a relationship with one another unto God. That's our mission. That's who we are as the people of God. We broker a relationship between Jesus and the world. And then we trust that God is big enough to sort through our own eccentricities and quirks and times when we place more emphasis on our own understanding than on the one true and living Jesus. You see, this ghost from Christmas past has kind of a dark side. And it's when we look back and we see those times whenever we have emphasized law more than people. Sometimes, whenever you've been at following Jesus for a long time, especially doing the kind of stuff that I do as a professional Christian, people might look at you and say, you know, through the years you've, come, you've gone kind of soft on whatever doctrine, law, whatever. You know why? At first I used to argue with people, oh no, I haven't gone, okay, I have, I have gone, I've gone soft. I've gone soft through the years. But you know why? It's because when I was a young minister, I had, you know, all the stuff studied and I had all the rules just right. That's what I did. And so whenever, you know, somebody in my church would do something you know, and they would say something, they'd be like, nope, here's the way it is. Book, chapter, verse, here. Here's this. And then I had people through the years say, well, I hear you, but let me tell you my story. Let me tell you about what's going on in my life. And then I'm like, oh, man. All this law stuff would be a lot easier to pull off if it wasn't for one constant in the life of the people of God. You know what it is? The people of God. Law is real easy to defend and pull off if it wasn't for all you people. But there you sit and you keep coming and you keep listening to this stuff and then you start realizing, well, okay, I hear your story, but God still has standards, right? Yeah, God does have standards. You know what God's standards are? Love God, love your neighbor. All the law and the prophets hang on those two commands. Because that's what Jesus said. When I was 
freshman in college, not just any freshman in college, a freshman Bible major. We had 60 people in our freshman Bible majors class, which by the way, 60 people, six Scots and five Jets. So welcome to 1990. So we're all learning all this stuff, and we're reading things we've never read before, and considering all this ministry and Bible and Greek stuff, and I'm just having a blast, just eating it up. I mean, second semester of freshman year, after Jen and I had started dating, she used to come get me out of the library because the Lord bless you and keep you would start playing over the sound system, which was ACU's way of saying, get out, we're closed. I just forget time, totally forget time. So into this stuff. But where the ghost of Christmas past has been just haunting a little bit is that it was during that time that I went back home on a weekend and a friend of mine from high school came back from college and she was pregnant. She hadn't gotten married or she came back, she was pregnant. And I went out of my way to tell her why that was wrong. truth of the matter is, years later I went back and I said, you know, in thinking about that, I seriously doubt that that conversation that we had in the foyer of the first floor of the Turnpike Church of Christ in front of the elevator in 1991 brought you closer to God, and I'm sorry. But even when you say you're sorry... Things like that still kind of eat at you. The law, it's so easy to write down, memorize, codify, lock down, and then we get involved. And I think it's why Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, and then he quoted the law. But I tell you, and actually sometimes the but I tell you is harder to pull off than what was originally in the law. So I'm not saying this is going to be easy. What I am saying is that the disciples, John the Baptist, all the angels, and the very Lamb of God are all doing the same thing on this very day. Same exact thing. It's the reason we baptize to this day. It's the same reason John the baptizer baptized. It's the same reason that the angels are still ascending and descending. It's to welcome people into the saving life of Jesus, the Lamb of God, who not only forgives, but somehow takes away the sin of the world. That passage does not say, everybody, I'd like you to meet Jesus, who one of these days is going to take away the sin of the world. Meantime, y'all just sit around and wait. No, it says, this is Jesus. He takes away the sin of the world, past, present, and future, all at the same time. 
Let us continue to invite people into the waters of baptism, literally. And if you don't know what that means, ask somebody. We have love to give in a world of hate. We have unity to give in a world of division. We have hope to share in a world of despair. We have joy to give in a world of fear. It's like we can hear echoes of John the baptizer in the water along with the angels in heaven whose music resonates across all space and time. The simple gift that John the gospel writer still tells us as one of the first truths, one of the truest truths ever spoken. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness is not overcoming. World without end. Amen.